A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. How's how's the day been? Has it been a little bit uh, a little bit hectic or? Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> in a bit of a whirlwind. We're supposed to do some more dates after tonight. You guys are based in Glasgow, aren't you? Yeah, so I was supposed to be coming to the show tonight, but then I think that's yeah, that's all. Yeah, done. sorry about that. We just it's all just to get a little bit too real, and we're running the gauntlet trying to get all the shows finished. But um, yeah, we sort of just realised that we had to go home. Yeah, it's even more serious. I mean, with all the borders and stuff kind of starting to close at the minute, it's a bit getting a bit well, frightening. We're going to have to we're going to have to isolate for fourteen days when we get back to Australia. Really, because just because you've been in the country and could have been exposed to. Well, it. any yeah, look, I, I I kind of stopped reading about everything because it was getting on my nerves. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, the Australian government has just put a law in place that. Anybody returning as an Australian citizen from overseas travel or business ventures has to isolate upon return for fourteen days at least. Man. It's going to be interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So are you guys are you guys like flying out straight away? Pretty much, you try to get back as soon as possible. Or? Well, yeah, we, we were going to go to Glasgow tonight. We we're in Manchester this morning, and then we thought if we do the show tonight, then we'll have a. What is it? What's the what's the drive from Glasgow to London? Like ten hours or something? Eight hours? Yeah, at least probably like nine, ten. Yeah. Yeah, so we would have had to do a ten-hour drive and then catch a two, uh, you know, be on um, planes for two days. Man. So we thought we'd just just come straight back to London and yeah, we'll we'll go. Yeah, I mean it's pretty, yeah, probably the best. How, I mean, how are things in Australia at the minute? Cause remember the last time we spoke, the bushfires and everything were kind of you know raging. Are they kind of calmed down a bit or? Yeah, I mean, it's not in the media as much. I think that a lot of the fires have calmed down. Um, and we haven't had as much of it. It's been really interesting because, I mean, I speak for the last two weeks because I've been over here, but the summer has been a lot um, cooler um, than than usual. Usually uh, during March, it's real fucked. It's, 
When did you guys do the last record? Because I remember you were saying that you did it in a heatwave when you uh, recorded it. When did we record the last record? Yeah, because that was it was in the middle of a heatwave when you recorded that, wasn't it? Like a summer heatwave in well, Australia. Is that, is, it, is that this time last year? Ah, right, yeah. Um, in Adelaide. Yeah, actually this exact time last year. <laughs> we would have been <laughs> starting in a few days. And yeah, it was awful weather. Really bad. Yeah. So, um... One of the... the yeah. One of the things I was interested to ask about, actually, just to start off, was um, coronavirus itself and kind of how that will impact you being in a band at the moment in the music industry. Can you kind of see the, the impact of it at the moment? Or obviously, I mean, it's cancelled the tour, but do you know how it's going to impact you in the future yet? Or Yeah, well, I've got a regional tour in Australia booked in for late April through all of May. Um, we were supposed to play a bunch of festivals as soon as we got back from a, uh, from this UK trip the week after in Brisbane and then another and then the week after that in Sydney and I think I mean they are, at this point they're still going ahead but for the first one we're supposed to still be in isolation so I'm not sure if we're going to make it to that one because the, the, the government are imposing fines people that break the I don't know what you call the isolation code or whatever Man, yeah. but um and then we're supposed to do Splendour in the Grass later in the year I'm not really sure what's going to happen with that but, yeah um, it's a massive Australian festival isn't it yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, oh, I mean, yeah. The impact on the economy in general is going to be quite interesting to track. But yeah, music. I mean, for bands, touring is your kind of your lifeblood because you—that's how you make your money. You sell tickets and you sell merchandise at the shows, and you know, especially for someone from Australia trying to crack the UK market in a way, um, it's been a bit of a stinger for us. Yeah. just really poor timing but I mean a lot of bands from Australia are suffering the same thing well, so I yeah I think the music, the music industry is going to take a really big hit on this one and it's going to be I think festivals are going to probably suffer the worst big festivals but you know if you want to take something positive from that it's probably going to be uh, good for bands because more people will come to your, your shows because um, it's hard to sell tickets to things now because people just go to festivals and do it all in one or two days or over a weekend and camp so it's hard to sell tickets to you yeah. your tours but yeah well, so, I mean it's just a waiting game I guess see what happens yeah it's hard to say what's going to happen I mean I guess it kind of ties into the record a wee bit as well because I was used to cut an album last year called Doomsday Ballad do, do you think the themes of that record have become a wee bit more prominent now or do, how do you think it's kind of affected really, people's perspective of it yeah it's, re- it's really interesting a lot of the themes that we addressed at the time the lyrical content that we were sort of wanting to um, write about have started to come true <laughs> um, which is it's really there's a guy there's a, we found out today which I mean we kind of thought it, found it amusing at first but then it's also sad there's a guy called Richard Wilkins in Australia who's this famous TV presenter and we, he um, is part of one of our lyrics and um, he was just recently diagnosed with coronavirus today um, and yeah so I don't, a lot of stuff is just coming to light and um, you know we, we sang a lot about um, you know the, we, yeah, the landscape of Australia and um, the country in general and you know then the bushfires hit and 
now this and, I don't know, doomsday is in the name of the app. So I guess it relates to part of what we saw the future of the world that we live in becoming. Um, Did you write it as a prediction? or Sorry? Did you write it as like a prediction? Did you kind of write it thinking this was going to happen? Oh, or well, we... no, we were, just, we were just writing about what we were seeing at the time. You know? I mean, that's why it's kind of no surprise, but shit is just absolutely going bananas at the moment. We're probably going to experience another global financial crisis. Yeah, I mean, that's what they predicted, isn't it? Airlines are going bust. Banks are going to struggle. The stock market's plummeting. Um, Industry as a whole is just um, really fucked and people are dying. So it might just be a coincidence, but uh, this might just be evolution um, doing its thing. And... Yeah, I guess it's just, uh, it kind of feels, it does feel apocalyptic, and it feels like we're in war times. And I, but, uh, yeah, mentioning war, I hope that, you know, something as tragic as war doesn't ensue, doesn't become a byproduct of the mentality of the people post-COVID, because I think that, you know, I can't see the governments being able to support a lot of the small businesses going bust. I think people will become very jaded and angry even more angry than they already are. And, yeah, I can just see it not being a very positive outcome. So, yeah, that's sort of where my head's at. It's all very confusing. How how does that affect what you're writing musically? Do you think good music comes out of a bad time? Do you think it has any impact on that? Or Well, I was going to say, art and music is the one thing that you can rely on in times like this. Um, they're the one thing that can pull you out of it provide you with small glimpses of happiness and positivity for, you know, whether it's a span of three minutes of a song or an hour and a half for a movie or, um, you know, you can't go to an art gallery at the moment. So, uh, I don't know. A lot of things live online, like music and art, that might be able to pull people, to, people out of the, these desperate times. So Yeah, can I use it as an escape? That's one, that's one place that people can turn to. Yeah, there's a good escape. I mean, mm. one of the things I picked up in, in your kind of music and your lyrics as well, although a lot of the time you're addressing these uh, these darker topics, there's quite a lot of humour in them. I mean, like Piss Christ in the albums, the lyrics and that are quite entertaining. How? What do you feel are the advantages of having humour, like in your lyrics and your music? I, I guess that's just a reflection of who we are as people. <laughs> I don't know. We we do find um, humour in morbidity sometimes. I mean, there's a time and a place for humour as well. There's obviously a line that you shouldn't cross. Yeah. Um, for certain things, but when you're talking about Donald Trump or Boris Johnson or our Prime Minister Scott Morrison, all these you know uh, white male leaders that run the world, uh, there's room for humour. I think. It's also important that not not everything's doom and gloom when you're providing commentary on something or uh, lyrical analysis. You should there should be room for a bit of um, yeah lightheartedness. I feel. Yeah, I mean, you did a little bit as well with Bogan Pride, like on the first album, where you kind of took. Well, actually, could you could you stop? Like, what is a Bogan for someone who's not from Australia? Well, a Bogan probably takes on many forms, but um, they're perceived as. I mean, there's all different types of bogans in Australia. It's just perceived as someone that's a bit of a feral, really. Yeah. Um, or someone, the perception of someone that might carry an ideology that isn't 
in keeping with the ideologies of people that are aligned to um, the left and maybe right wing in their opinion have racist values, um, but you know may also be cashed up and just that live a very different lifestyle in very different places. But that's that's not like a it's not a uh, it's, it's funny because a lot of our audiences would probably identify um, as part of that faction of society. And yeah. it's not something that we're like, we're putting ourselves on some pedestal of, or, you know, uh, I don't know the word I'm looking for, but we're not, we're not having a crack. It's just observation. Um, and that notion of like being proud of where you come from and uh, the things you think and feel and how that, where that sits in society as opposed to other people's ideals. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard to explain if you're not from Australia. Are, are they, would you like consider them like a problem? Uh, is it just part well, of life almost? It was or? also based on, there was, a, there was a group of surfers and skateboarders. There's a big surfing community on the east coast of Australia called the Bra Boys. And there were these big riots that took place in Cronulla. I can't remember the year that took place. But it was a huge issue at the time because it was pretty much like um, the lower socioeconomic surfing community in white Australia versus the Lebanese and Muslim community at the same time. And it, it really did drive a bit of a wedge between the two. And Australia, I'm not sure what it's like in the UK, but it really does suffer from... Um, anti-Islam, anti-Muslim uh, sort of bashing at times. You know, white Australia just has a very dark history, and uh, some of it, some of it's, um, it, it rears its ugly head at times. And that was one instance in particular. So that was part of the um, the themes. That was that was sort of the theme that that drove the lyrics of the song. Um, you know, patriotism at its worst. Is that something that's uh, gotten better since you released the first album, or is it still very much quite a big problem? Um, I think it's getting better. People are more aware, more tolerant. The conversation is taking place to drive that mentality out of our society. But I think it's probably always going to exist. Look, I don't really know. That's just what I think. And I, I hate it. But uh, and I think it's important for people to keep writing songs about it, and or you know create art, yeah, um, about things like that. And it's also potentially a generational thing. I'm not really sure. Um, poor values and taught to impressionable youths by people who have experienced interesting an interesting history in an interesting country. That that is what Australia is. Yeah. So yeah. With writing a song about something like that, are you trying to draw attention to it and trying to make a point of it and you know spread the awareness of it and that sort of yeah, thing? Of or course. what's the purpose of, of yeah? Why why did you decide to write a song like that? Um, because that's what we believe. Yeah, <laughs> and it would feel fake to not. I mean, we also have other songs that aren't you know that are about love or um, depression or just the dystopian nature of the world as a whole. They're all different themes in our music. I guess they, you know, some songs just align themselves to deeper, more intrinsic, intrinsic value of uh, evaluation of where you sit in society and 
and how it runs. Will you like? Will you pick a topic or a theme and decide to write a song around that, or how does a song like that begin? Oh, not so much anymore. Um, a lot of those songs that you're probably referencing were written by the lyrical concept. The lyrics were written by Alex, who's you know a really great lyricist who I've learned a lot from. I'm probably only really at the point now where I'm starting to get more lyrics on songs because it took me the best part of a decade to you know, sort of find what worked for me in terms of writing. But he has, yeah, it's probably a question you have to ask him. Unfortunately, he's on a plane right now back to Australia. <laughs> uh, but, um, yeah, I mean, sometimes things like that just align themselves. To, I mean, that's... That, the term Bogan Pride and the things behind the lyrics lent themselves to the brutality of the chord structure and how the song worked. we wanted the song down. You know, it'd be, it'd, it couldn't, it'd be a very different type of song if we were singing about going to the burger joint and, you know, dancing with a girl to, to that type of music. So I guess, yeah, maybe you do have it in mind all the time, but we don't really structure songs like we don't have any sort of formula that's rigid where we have to have a theme before we go into it. It's just sort of whatever happens, happens. Yeah. You mentioned there's a, how Alex had written quite a lot of the lyrics for those songs. In terms of the new album, are you contributing more to the lyrics yourself now? Or are the newer songs kind of written by yourself in part as well? Or what's the, the yeah. dynamic like there? Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. I, I definitely had more, more of a part to play in the lyrics, but I always... You know, he's sort of my barometer. He sort of would be like the gatekeeper of what does get through. And I respect that because he, I think mean, he's good at what he does. But, um, and, you know, we, I also rang him in at times as well. But we spend a lot more time writing together for the last album over you know, a two-year period. We did a lot of home demos at my house or in studios around Australia. And just, yeah, spend a lot of time. It's interesting when you create a bit of a, a, a lyrical and songwriting partnership with someone. Yeah. It's hard to do. I, I feel like it, yeah, it's, it's, it's nice to have that person as a sounding board for your creativity and your art. Because it's, it's a very vulnerable experience creating music. Because you never know whether it's good. Even once you've finished it and released it, you still... You know, have those moments where you look back and you're like, oh, fuck, was it good? Is it, you know, a bit naff? But yeah, we, uh, on the last album, we definitely spent a lot more time working on things together and lyrics, so, yeah. What's the, you know, it's like a, a difference in those songs that you've written together compared to the ones that are written by yourselves? Uh, I think part of the relationship you've, you know what the other person's going to watch and maybe you tailor it a little bit to them. Because he would, when he's writing melodies, for instance, he needs to consider the way that I'm going to sing it or the way that I'm going to phrase things and I also need to consider the way that he's going to write guitar lines over them or, you know, how they're going to be produced. So, yeah, I mean, I guess there's sort of... Uh, if you're looking at a Venn diagram, there's probably some cross, crossover, which uh, yeah, allows a bit of an amalgamation of the two types of songwriting to become one. When did you, I'm interested as well, like when did you first realise that you could you could trust each other when you were songwriting and you could work well with each other in that kind of way? Because you obviously speak about it being quite a, you know, a special relationship in that sense that you can work together like that. Well, early on, I didn't really know anything about 
good music. So uh, he taught me everything I knew. He, we actually, he's a little bit older than me. And we met at our footy club after a game. There's this, um, I don't know if we, we spoke about this last time with the we were together, um, but there's this area at the back of our football club, the pub, um, it's called The Barn, where everyone would go and just get shit-faced after the games on Saturday nights and eat schnitzels and drink beer and play pool. And we met there and we started talking about music. Um, and as a result of that, he took me to this, he, he bought me a ticket to Newcastle and we got some tickets to this of, um, mini festival called Winter Chills Festival and there was just these awesome like, punk bands playing. Uh, yeah, just awesome. Like, uh, I was just exposed to this side of music that I didn't even know existed. Um, of like underground uh, labels, underground bands, blah, blah, blah. And Did from it... there, it, sort of just, it had the flow-on effect where it was just sort of opened up to this whole new world. Do you so recall really, what kind of bands were playing at that festival? Sorry, mate? Do you recall what kind of bands were playing at the festival when you went there? Oh, there was, uh, there was a band called Oscar and Martin. Was it the energy of these bands that kind of struck you, or what was it that hit you? Well, what hit me was that it was so shit. <laughs> but it was so awesome at the same time. Like, there were people that sort of kind of didn't know what they were doing, but they had really um, a really good basis of taste and their influences. But I only know that now after listening to all of the bands that influenced bands like that. So... But yeah, at the time, I just didn't really know what I was watching. Yeah. It's interesting you uh, mention uh, like being into Dylan and stuff as well, because I don't really thought of that in relation to you, but now that you've said it, songs like Harry Station, they kind of come to mind when you speak about being a fan of Dylan. Dylan? Yeah. Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, Bob Dylan's a huge influence in Alex and I, in all facets. He's just one of the great artists of well, all time. Yeah. And had the ability to always reinvent himself and maintain taste and just do it well. Is that something you've maybe tried to do with on the arm as well, reinvent yourselves? Because you've kind of, obviously you've gone into the studio about reading stuff and it, you've taken kind of a different approach to it as opposed to like the first two albums. It, it feels quite different in that sense. Just well, at yeah, the, I mean, the sound of the record. Uh, so, yeah, well, I mean, a part of it, sorry, what was the question? Did you kind of, do you see yourself as this album like kind of trying to reinvent yourself a bit with a new album? Like what you're obviously speaking about Dylan, yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it was time to move to a different track and like just sort of reset with the two-year period, which it really isn't much, but in the modern landscape of music, it is a long time. Yeah. Because people want products, you know, every fucking... Month, <laughs> but we a part of the reinventing process, for lack of a better word, is was the demo process that we had, which was we'd do we don't I'll call them pre demos, which would be like taking a phone recording idea, creating parts at our very shitty home studios on GarageBand or Logic, and then moving to doing them with the rest of the band 
at a proper or at a semi decent studio into the demo process and then showing them to Burke and Jack Ladder, who also assisted on the production side of the album. So, but it definitely was a deliberate shift because we wanted to create um, something a little more, uh, a little bit more produced and considered in terms of like how the songs are structured and written, tones and everything as a whole. We're in the first two albums, we just wanted to go into the studio and record them live, you know, and capture the live dance sound. But it's, what's interesting about it is we actually, once we deconstructed all the songs for the third album, which is, you know, the time that we, the album that we sort of wanted to reinvent ourselves, we actually ended up playing them live as a band more than we did for the first two albums. So the sound that you hear on the third album is kind of more us live than the first two. Yeah. Which is kind of ironic because that's what we wanted to steer away from. Uh, but Burke was insistent that we track live. So, you know, some of those songs would have taken 40 takes. Uh, Sorry. It was really, it was really stressful. <laughs> but that, doing that just makes you better players of your instruments and better songwriters because you really, you really, really go deep. Yeah. Um, and it made me a better singer as well because he really pushed me. So, how, like, obviously, with the techniques you're speaking about there for recording it, how do you think that like affects the energy of the album? And how do you feel like the energy of the new record differs to the previous two? Well, I just think it allows itself to be played live and sound the same. Whereas we always, we always struggle to play slow songs live. But yeah, I don't know. It's an interesting question. <laughs> yeah, I'm not really sure how to answer that. Yeah, to take it back as well to songs like Harry Station and you know Campbell, the, the kind of slower ones, the more contemplative ones yeah. in the album. Why do you think you were like driven to have those songs in that style and present them in that way? Well, Harry Station is an interesting one because that was originally more of like a jangly driving song in like the same, the same sort of similar vein to like Side Pretty or like The Go Between. But it just, yeah, Burke sort of broke it right down and wants to do like a, an acoustic ballad. That's one song that we're sort of, has never really sit right with me, to be honest. Because the finished product product of it is really cool and awesome, but I I would have loved to have seen it played differently and how it would. Um, I, I don't know. I feel like that song could have been like a single or something if if it was if it was um, produced a little bit differently. But when you're in the studio, and you don't you don't know what the single is going to be at what time. You're just working on them individually and doing the best that you can with. Um, the time you have and the sounds that you can pull. Um, you... But a lot of the, a lot of people use Harry Station. A lot of people really like Harry Station, and it's uh, yeah, it's an interesting one. Would you ever consider like? Would you ever like reimagine it live and play it differently live and try and play it in that style of like a traditional kind of bedroom single? Would you ever think about doing I, that? Or? I'd love to. That's just kind of not the band we are. You, uh, I think you have to be a certain type of jammy band. You know, I think that like bands like. King Gizzards, for instance, can sort of do whatever the fuck they want and have, like, they can play 10 different genres of music and nobody would bad an eyelid. But we've just sort of, like, found our niche, which we're not, like, I'd like to uh, one day break out of it, but, um, yeah, it's just not the type of band we are, I don't feel, that um, can do something like that. Which we try to do it with some songs, but... You know, live, we just almost feel like really compelled to play loud and hard and 
fucking go for it. Yeah. So to be like delicate and considered in, in the approach to the live sound is really diff- it's always been really difficult for us. Having said that, I would like to explore that option if, you know, we don't all die of coronavirus <laughs> and never play gigs again. Did you like go into like the records with aims and ideas of where you want to explore and what you want to achieve with the record and what you want to do with it? Well, we knew that Burke was a good producer, so yeah. we knew that he was going to hear something in the song and change them. And the re- and we also got Jack Ladder on board because for the same reasons. But and he's you know a real whiz on instruments. We we call him like fiddle fingers because he's always in the studio just like playing with stuff all the time. So I mean. Yeah, we wanted to kind of leave it in there. We just had the demos, which were, you know, now that I look back, very rough forms of songwriting with no real structure. But that was kind of just how we did it at that point in time. So we just wanted to, like, give them the free reign to pick, A, pick the tracks. That we, we gave them the option of 20 tracks, and they had to whittle them down to 10. And then, you know, they sort of just had free reign to... Um, Pick the, yeah, pick the songs and then change them up as, as they saw fit. So, yeah, I mean, I guess by choosing them as the producers, that's what we were doing. I saw as well that you're about to go and start working on the next record. Are you going to do the same thing again where you demo a heap of tracks and kind of figure it out that way? Or? Yeah. Yeah, we've already started. We've already started um, doing some demos. We actually did them this week in Brighton. Uh, no, 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 sorry. In, uh, we've, we've, did a few rehearsal days in Brighton, um, and then we went to London and did some some of the demos with uh, Rory Atwell, who played in Test Bicycles back in the day, and has also done a bunch of stuff with Die Die Die, and he um, produces and writes music for film and TV now. Yeah. We went and did uh, four tracks with him, and uh, already it was a, a bit of a lightning in a bottle moment with him we found a real connection with him I'm not sure what's going to happen but we're just going to try and work with him in the future and I think that we might even try and produce this next record ourselves because I just feel like that's the right move Do you feel like that's something you've maybe been uh, building toward like producing something yourself? Yeah, I just, we just feel like we're ready to do that um, with the help of you know someone like Rory I, well, I don't know who's going to be with Piotr he might be with Burke again but we haven't really decided because, uh, you know, given the circumstances, everything's sort of up in the air of how the next year or so is going to pan out. But, um, yeah, we've just been talking and we've been thinking that it's probably time to do it ourselves. We've been, we've been at it for almost a decade. I think we've probably learned a thing or two. You know, with a good engineer, learned some good tones. We feel like we can sort of understand ourselves and our own music and our lyrics better than, you know, a, a producer coming in at this point in time. Yeah, we've needed producers in the past to guide us through it, but I think we might give this one a crack. I mean, I guess you know your sound better than anyone. Well, yeah. The one thing I will say is that working with Burke helped us realise that. You know, he's a fantastic producer and an absolute workhorse and a guru. And he, he really allowed us, you know, it sort of opened up different doors and unlocked different gates that we didn't know existed in terms of what we harboured within ourselves as songwriters and musicians. So I think, yeah, we wouldn't have been in this mindset if we had never worked with Burke. But uh, so 
which is interesting. So, you know, it's like you, you think you probably, you know, if you do, do something well with someone and there's a positive relationship and the artistic process, then you probably just go back to them again. But I, feel, I just feel like we can do it ourselves. And I think we're ready for that challenge. Have you have you ever gone back and like revisited any of the demos from the last album and like looked at taking them onto this one or are they? they um, very few. Yeah, I've got them all. You know what's going to fit. Yeah. I mean, you, and that's the thing, like, you could rework old demos and ideas, or you could just start fresh and create new ideas, and I think that's sort of where we're at. I think we're ready to, yeah, do something completely new, that, you know, that's still us, and is a representation of who we are as people in some way. Why Why did uh, Cannonball end up on the last album then? Because I know it was written like nine years ago or something. How did it end up coming back and working its way onto the, the last record? Well, yeah, well, that's good. <laughs> you know your shit. <laughs> <laughs> um, it just wasn't ever ready. And I'm glad we waited because I don't think the producer for the first two albums, Mark Opitz, could have done what, uh, he couldn't have done what uh, Burke and Jack did with it. You know, they turned it into exactly what it was meant to be, and I'm glad we sat on that song. Yeah. Um, and there's probably, you know, there's probably other examples of that too. Not, not that I can think of off the top of my head, but yeah, Cannonball was a was a really interesting one. Um, and I'm, uh, yeah, I'm really that's what that's probably my favourite off the last album actually. Yeah, it's a great tune. It's a really good song. Thanks. Appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> Are there? Do you ever think you have? Is there anything you feel like you maybe have? you kind of wish that you'd waited and you hadn't put it out on one of the records and you kind of left it a bit longer to kind of marinate before going back to it or are you pretty confident that everything you stuck out? Do you, do you mean songs that already exist on one of the three albums? Yeah, like obviously how you were saying that Cannonball wouldn't have been the same had you put it out on one of the first records. Are there any that you feel you kind of wish you maybe had waited and came back to later on? You know, not off the top of my head. Maybe, maybe Gallows on the end of the last album. Yeah. But also, that was, there are songs that just exist in a time and a place and they need to be done then and there. And I think maybe it's like the inner songwriter in you or whatever that just is like, no, this, that has to be on the album. And all, or the inner songwriter in you is just like, no, we'll, we'll hold tight on this one. So, yeah, I mean, probably all of them, really. <laughs> but then if that was the model that you took, then you never release music. Yeah. You'd always, you always want more time, but uh, actually, maybe there is one song. But by my side, I think from Guptal, I would have liked to have really tried to nut that one out over a few years. I feel like it could have been something a little bit bigger than what it ended up being, but it is what it is. Yeah, you learn from it, I guess. What's that? Sorry, I'm saying you, at least you kind of learn from it, like you can learn from that going forward. And apply exactly it to future right. songs, yeah. yeah. We, we weren't to know that at the time because, you know, we didn't know. You're a byproduct of the things you learn across a, a great deal of time. So. I, I wanted to ask a wee bit actually about your Like A Version, the last one you did before I let you go. Because um, yeah. you covered Blackfella Whitefella in it, which, uh, is that quite a big song in Australia? Because I wasn't familiar with that before I saw you guys cover it, but it was a really interesting kind of take on it. Uh, it is, yeah. It's I mean, I, I, to be honest, I don't know how big it is because 
was recorded by this band called Will Warrupy Band. We're from Northern Territory. They toured early on with Midnight Oil. I think they were actually signed to the Midnight Oil record label. And it was Alex's idea because we got offered the chance to do like a version, which is a big deal in Australia. We actually wanted to originally do REM, Everybody Hurt. You know, we thought that's probably like one of the last like rock indie classics that hasn't been done on the the format of rock version. We thought we could do it well, do it justice. And the radio station came back and said that they didn't want us to do that. And we're like, well, what can we do that's poignant, poignant and like of the time? And it was, Alex said we should do Blackfella, Whitefella, well, Wurrumpi Band. And I was a little bit hesitant at first, but um, it turned out to be a really good idea, and I think we did it well. And, yeah, I think we did it tastefully somewhat. We had members from Mumbali Band for, who were from uh, Numbawa up in NT, and Emily Waramara. I think she lives in, Brisbane, in Tasmania now, but she's originally from Brisbane, but she's related to the guys from Mumbali. Yeah, it was sort of one of the highlights of um, musical careers to just be a part of something like that. And people in Australia really liked it. All the listeners, listeners of Triple J really liked it. And yeah, I think, I think we did a good job. Yeah. Did you, was it Peter Garrett? Was that who you got in as well? Oh yeah, was, yeah, yeah, that's right. So, <laughs> Peter Garrett on board as well. Who I, I'm, I hadn't, I hadn't heard of him before, but I looked him up. Who is he? Because he a politician as well, a musician. What's who is Peter Garrett? Well, he's been, a, he's been a, since the early eighties. He's been a real. I mean, Midnight Oil has been a real political um, figure of the band in Australia since the late seventies. And uh, Peter dipped his toes into political issues from the get go in the, their band's gestation, I think. And then he became a politician for the Labor Party in, uh, oh, it would have been the 2000s, I can't remember the exact year. Yeah. But he had a bit of a fall from grace with something that happened. With, we don't need to go into that, actually. Yeah, but, yeah, it's fine. But, <laughs> uh, he's a really good guy and has, uh, you know, has a band that have great morals and he, we asked him to do it and, you know, Australian Indigenous culture is something that he's extremely passionate about and he really it drives the cause home time and time again and he offered his, was willing to offer his time on that given day and I really appreciate that he did and, it, uh, you know, it probably gave the, the message of the song and, um, uh, yeah, a lot of legs. That, uh, it, it, yeah, it's important for that song to come out at that time as well, um, because there was a young man in the middle of Australia who was murdered by police officers, a young Indigenous Australian man, and that happened in the same week. Not that we were to know that, we were doing it at, at, in, within the same week, but um, it was a good experience. Sorry, I'm starting to ramble, I've had half a bottle of wine talking to you. <laughs> it must have, I imagine it's, start, been, it's been a long day. I'm starting to get a stuttering. <laughs> I mean, I imagine it's been a long day traveling all day. I've got, I've got yeah, one left before uh, you go. It's actually this no. question's actually drink related as well. Um, this question's drink, uh, drink related as well, because I know that you oh, get, okay, you guys are kind of uh, often referenced as like a pub rock band, you know, with your music and you kind of reference it. There's aspects of it of the genre. So I yeah. wondered, what's your pint of choice when you go into a pub? Guinness. Guinness. 
I love it. Good show. I like a putt again. Well, yeah, I, a few years ago, I um, oh, probably hear me calling the line. I, uh, <laughs> I went to the doctor because I had stomach cramps, and he said you're drinking too much beer and your gluten enzyme counters through the roof. So I stopped drinking beer and I went to wine. So I've never really been a fan of beer since. Or something just about the taste in my mouth wasn't very nice. But coming to the UK three times in the last year found a real affiliation with my palate and Guinness. So I love, yeah, I love that drink. Do you have a pint of tenants as well when you were in Scotland? Oh, I did. I think, yeah, I think the other guys did. I think I did. Uh, did I have one with you? I might have had one with Actually, you. yeah, I think we did have a pair of tenants, yeah. Yeah, we did. Yeah, <laughs> I forgot that. I remember that now. Because you guys, you were going to see the Libertines on the Sunday as well, weren't you? Going to the what? You were going to see the Libertines on the Sunday as well, weren't you? Yeah, yeah, we went to Barrowlands and saw Libertines play. Nice one. Which was really interesting. Pete was off his head. Yeah, I was at that show as well. Was that the show? Oh, I, did you go? Yeah, because the guy got the, the mic stand chucked at him. Yes, yeah. that's right. Um, that was a wild show, yeah. I mean, I've seen them a few times now. And it, was, it was good. They sounded awesome. Yeah. And uh, that venue is amazing. Had you been at the Barrel Lines before? I haven't, no. Matt, it's good. But I think it's one of... How many cats do you reckon that venue is? I've, I've heard a mixed range. I think it's like 1,900, 2,000, kind of around that. So, you, I swear it's the only 2,000 cat venue that does cash only. Yeah, it's pretty shit. It's annoying. I had to go across the road and get money out of the ATM to buy some beer. Yeah. No, but it was all, it was good. It was nice to see them play. Yeah, they were very good. It's good to see them still go on. Mm. But yeah, but thanks like very much for your time this evening. I really appreciate it. And, uh, oh, anytime. How's the podcast going? It's good, man. Yeah, the podcast is, I think we're like 10, this is episode number 10, we're like 10 episodes in, but... I really enjoy it because you kind of get the opportunity to have a bit more of a conversation with someone, you know, as opposed to like an interview format, you can still have a bit of a chat. Yeah, when it goes a bit longer, for sure. Yeah. Hopefully get one done if you guys are back here later in the year, doing some more UK days. You should come over, you should come over to Big Sound and, uh, in, in Australia, Texas place in Brisbane. You can just like spend the week in Brisbane and interview as many bands as you need. If I had the money to go over to Mel, where did you say it was Brisbane? In Brisbane, yeah, look at that, Big Sound. If I had the money, I'll, oh, I might make over one day, but when I get the money, I'll be over to Australia. Because I'd love to go. I'd love to go over and see Australia. Yeah, we'll see how this whole COVID thing ends up. Yeah, fingers crossed it clears up by the end of the year. Yeah. But now, man. Well, safe travel. Oh, you guys, right, you must buddy. be safe travels when it comes. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for having me on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you for the support. No, thanks very much again, man. Love talking to you. It's always a good chat. All right, buddy. Right. Bye. Cheers, man. Bye. Bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.